Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this evening is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. This can be found on page 1180 of the Church Bibles. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as, you have made, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do keep your Bibles open, your Bibles switched on at uh, Philippians 3. That's where we're going to be focused. Pete, thanks so much for a warmer welcome. Uh, it's great to be uh, back here and thank you very much indeed for inviting me. Uh, let me pray before we plunge in. Heavenly Father, take my lips this evening, I pray, and speak through them. And take each of our minds and hearts and wills and speak to them. 
for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. If you just cast your eye rapidly over the opening verse of this chapter, it can smack a bit of teaching grandmother to suck eggs, doesn't it? It's as if the apostle's saying, uh, look, you know this, uh, and I know you know this, but I'm still going to tell you. Uh, and it all seems to revolve around the idea that it's who you know that counts. Um, for us today, that's one of those terrible verdicts on an institutional group, isn't it? It smacks of something unfair, exclusive. It doesn't matter what you've done, it's who you know that counts here. Uh, it kind of, you know, for all the efforts of HR, you ask, how on earth did he get that job? Uh, and they say, uh, wake up, he's the chairman's nephew. It's who you know that counts around here. Why does she get the perks? She and the boss were at school together. It's who you know that counts here. Unjust, unfair, exclusive, but too often a fact of life. And then we discover in, as we read this chapter that when it comes to the Christian gospel, it's who you know that counts too. Yet there's a very different flavor here. It's inclusive, not exclusive. It's open to all and any, not restricted to a privileged few. And yet at the heart of this gospel, there's a relationship that opens the door to everything else, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, as he puts it. As the apostle wrestles with different spiritualities, explains the choices that shape his life and he hopes ours, this relationship is key. So much so he won't swap it for anything. When he begins the chapter, rejoice in the Lord, it's not the sort of worship leader introducing another chorus. It's an encouragement to see what he sees in Jesus. To have my confidence, my hope, my heart set on him and not pulled anywhere else. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a call for the Philippians and us to recognize the relationship at the heart of this chapter, there in verse 8, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And even in this whistle-stop tour, you can't miss that there's a darker mood to this chapter. There's a danger that's not just from pressure and persecution from outside, there are seductive voices whispering on the inside too. They can sound plausible, they can look impressive, they can dry up my joy in the Lord all at the same time. And that's why he warns so strongly. See, you come to verse 2, watch out for the dogs, he says. Now, it's not the language of the gutter press. Dogs was a term Jews used for Gentiles, for those who were not the people of God, and now it's being turned on them. Evildoers. Evil because, uh, well, it's what turns me away from God. And you can do that religiously. You don't have to be an atheist, and they weren't. Mutilators of the flesh, he says. He's referring to circumcision. To a, a group who will be saying, it, it's wonderful you know Jesus. But if you really want to know God, if you really want to be one of God's people, you'd have the mark uh, because that's what really makes you one of the people of God. And Paul says, no, no, no. Actually, all it does is mutilate the flesh. 
It doesn't bring you to God. Well, just like today, the religious world then was full of competing spiritualities. And many people today, don't they? They hate to distinguish. We, we like everything to always be a, a situation where we can have both and. And not to be either or. But it's as Paul rejects the alternatives that we see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He faces up to three different choices and he plumps for Jesus every time. Here's the first of them in verses 4 to 8. Which gain? Which profit? Verse 4, if someone else thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, he's talking of something about me, my background, my service, my achievement that gives me a lever with God. If someone else thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And in verses 5 and 6, you've got a kind of well, spiritual top trumps. You know, most of you will have played Top Trumps and the rest of us will have played it with grandchildren and things. Uh, and uh, I remember playing with one of them, it was a fish Top Trumps. You know, every card was a different sort of fish and, and you get different scores for different categories. So I think there was size, strength, speed, cunning. Um, and if you're leading this round, you can choose the category and if you get a higher score uh, on that category, you win the card no matter what scores you got on any of the other categories. Well, spiritual top trumps works a similar kind of way. And when it comes to real religion, the apostle outscores them, uh, whatever the category. See, look at verses 5 and 6. The ritual mark, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, I win. Religious background of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You can't beat that. Law, uh, a Pharisee. Yeah, you won't know it better than me. <laughs> Zeal. Persecuting the church wasn't just head knowledge for me. It was real passion too, a heart fully engaged. I win. Righteousness, faultless. You know, I sit here, I hear the law read. I've got no conscience. I've got nothing to have a conscience about. My card again, thank you. It all sounds very childish, doesn't it? But you get the point he's making. He's impressive. I mean, you don't sidle up to the apostle and say, Oh, Paul, um, did you turn to Jesus because you needed a crutch? Uh, no, it's not that. But you see, he can put all of that on his CV and still discover there's a piece missing. You know, when you do a jigsaw, especially if you do one of those big thousand-piece jigsaws, I hate them, uh, but you know, and you got to the end and you discover there's a piece missing. It is infuriating, isn't it? And if the piece that's missing is the, the one that makes sense of all the others, the one to which all the others point and lead, I mean, that's a disaster. Well, here it's as if Paul's found the missing piece and assesses it, not reflecting on some hobby, but as a, as a hard-nosed businessman. He says, whatever were gains, whatever were profits to me, he says in verse 7, and there were profits... Paul always insists the law is good, for example, if it's used properly. Whatever were profits, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, 
I don't know why the Americans have suddenly sort of, you know, got their language in here, but um, actually for once, the Americans are as uh, diplomatic as the English version, which we'll talk about rubbish. Uh, the word is much stronger than that. Really, it's poo. Well, crap. Only don't tell your mother that I said that word here. Uh, you know, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He doesn't mince his words, and he's lived them. It's cost him status, respectability, friends, family, freedoms to know Jesus, and he insists it's worth it. You can't read these words without picking up the sense that there's something priceless about Jesus for Paul. He doesn't just affirm Jesus. He's got him on a pedestal over and above anything or anyone else who might give me confidence with God. The surpassing worth, the winner of any comparison of knowing Jesus. Now, this is a Christian church and this is a Sunday service and most of us here are probably happy to talk of knowing Jesus uh, as a piece in our life, as a player in our life. But surpassing worth. You see, what am I willing to let go of to know Jesus? And Paul says he's worth it. And here's why. See, which profit? Well, there's only one worth having. Secondly, which righteousness? That's verse 9. Because one day, we're all going to face God. And one day, the biggest question on all our minds as we queue to front up to Almighty God is, how can I be right with Him? It may not be the big question on your mind now, but it will be then. What can I bring to make that meeting a happy one, a joyful one? Well, Paul identifies a couple of approaches you could adopt. A couple of pieces of paper, if you like, you could bring. Uh, uh, two kinds of righteousness we can own. The first is what he calls a righteousness of my own. There in verse 9. See, be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. A certificate of good behavior, if you like based on the law, what God wants, but it's my own. It's achieved by me, it's signed by me, it needs to be lived by me, and that's the problem. If I'm going to have a righteousness that's of my own, well, it'll lead me in one of two directions, either to pride, where I'm saying, look at me, I've done it and it's all down to me, or to despair when I realize I can't deliver. Uh, the other week, Matthew Perry, one of the uh, great stars of the, the Friends TV show, died. Uh, extraordinary response to his death actually came out. And it was obvious that he'd been a good friend, a hugely talented actor and uh, comic, but also a man who spent his life battling uh, addictions to painkillers and alcohol. And uh, in one of his memoirs, he writes of a relationship he had with Julia Roberts, the actress. Uh, he was dating her. And he says this. He claims he was constantly convinced she was going to dump him. Why would she not? 
I was not enough. I could never be enough. I was broken, bent, unlovable. So instead of facing the inevitable agony of losing her, I broke up with the brilliant and beautiful Julia Roberts. That's almost tragic, isn't it? But uh, there are people, you see, who break up with God because they know they'll never be good enough for Him. And uh, they'll never discover a righteousness of my own. Um, but people are still trying to write those certificates today. You, you hear people who will talk about, well, you know, there's, there's uh, uh, kind of scales. You've got the good deeds in one scale and the bad deeds in the other, and you hope the good ones outweigh the other. I remember talking to a, a Muslim lad who told me we believe we have uh, two angels, one on each shoulder. One records our good actions. The other records our bad. Uh, and, and Paul's saying, really, you couldn't write a better line. You couldn't have a better CV than I did but I've discovered there's another certificate on the market, and that's the one I'm going for. Not a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness from God. See, look at verse 9 again. I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This certificate, this righteousness guarantees the bearer will be treated as right with God. I don't have to print it myself, it's made in heaven. So it's bound to be honored there, it's from God. It's not signed by me because it was God and Christ who worked together to provide it. As Paul writes elsewhere of the cross and what uh, uh, was going on there, he said, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. To be treated as the guilty party even though he was innocent. Who took our guilt so we could know his innocence. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, that cross gives me more than forgiveness and the clearing of debts. It gives me a righteousness and a full bank account. And Paul says, of these two righteousnesses, the one that's of my own, and my own making, and the, the one that's from God, I know which righteousness I want. Now, it's actually more humbling than we imagine at first sight to make ourselves dependent on what God gives us. And so Paul's stealing himself from the Philippians as he writes, impressive though his CV is, he is trusting Christ and what he did. He'll swallow his pride and take his place as one of God's people on the basis that God did him a favor and Christ bailed him out. It's actually the only reason any of us are here as Christians. But inside most of us is still that desire to be able to think we're standing on our own two feet and we've got the pride in that and I can't have the two together. Uh, we want to be sorted and look sorted but it's not why we're Christian. The apostle is not trusting in himself. He's approaching that eternity defining moment confident in the surpassing worth of Jesus. James, 
we'll uh, call him James, was a, a minister near where I once worked. And one day, seemingly out of the blue, he abandoned his wife and ran away with a member of the choir. It happens, tragically. And what made it worse was that James was a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching man, strong on moral righteousness and sexual morality, and with quite a reputation for it. In the public's eyes, he had a reputation a righteousness of his own. As to law, a stickler. As to zeal, a persecutor of the corrupt and the immoral. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, a pillar of morality. But no longer. The only righteousness James can have today is that which comes from God. God-given, God-earned. I mean, should James happen to humble himself and repent and put his confidence in Jesus? I mean, if he does, there are lots of things and lots of people he'll have to face up to. But uh, don't complain if God declares James righteous. Don't complain because James looked a self-righteous prig. Because if God can't do it for James, he couldn't do it for the Apostle Paul. He couldn't do it for those Philippian believers. He couldn't do it for you or for me. Don't let's deny the surpassing worth of Jesus to someone else when we're utterly dependent on him ourselves. Rejoice in the Lord. Which gain? Only one worth having, says Paul. Which righteousness? Only one worth trusting in. Which life? That's verses 10 and 11. Only one with a real future. And Paul sets out his choice first of all, and it's a striking one. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. It's a, a strong word as in Adam knew Eve. Uh, there's nothing sexual here, but that sense of intimacy. And the idea is that conversion brings us into union with relationship with Christ and an experience of him that grows. And it involves, well, look how verse 10 goes on. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection in the here and now. What in Ephesians, Paul describes as the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. The more I grapple with the New Testament, the more clearly I see that I hadn't realized how dead I was without Christ. And how alive I can be with Christ. I mean, look where this power takes me, what life it brings. He talks in verse 10 about the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, uh, as if there's a kind of fellowship of suffering and death that Jesus models. It's innocent suffering, it's for others suffering, and Paul wants to be part of that. And I think you don't need the power for that that's weakness, not power, that's being described here. I need power to go up in the world, not to come down, but to choose that life. Now, how very Jesus-like. But it'll take all the power of God to get me there. I listened to a, a remarkable Chinese church leader not so long ago. 
Pastor Wang heads a, a significant church. He's been told he must attend a program of re-education to make his teaching acceptable to the state. And the state would vet all the leaders in the church before they were appointed. Or, if he refused that, they would uh, act against the church. Here's what uh, Pastor Wang said to his church family. Would you rather I submit and go for religious instruction every month? Or would you rather they confiscate all our church property? Over 2,000 years of church history and Chinese church history, the church has always faced this struggle and this choice. It's continually be faced with this choice. What should we do? How do we demonstrate that we're a group of people who trust in Jesus? That we're a group of people who follow Jesus to the cross? How do we demonstrate that we're a group of Christians whose souls are free? That we're no longer a group of people who are slaves through fear of death? It's through bodily submission, through bodily suffering, that we demonstrate the freedom of our souls. Amen. He's joining the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. And he's since been arrested. Now, that's a world away from us. Though it may not stay that far away. But try Sue. She's in her 30s now. She was converted as a student. She would love to be married and have a Christian partner. She's an attractive girl and friends have urged her, you know, don't limit yourself. Go on, play the field. Take your pick. And she probably could. But she won't. She knows Jesus. Why do people choose to give up the pleasures of this life? What makes it worthwhile? Well, they've set their hearts on another life. Verse 11, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Somehow, it is not doubt or uncertainty about the result. He's just that he's unsure of the route, the details of what we'll go through before we get there. And they may well be very different for different ones of us. What we'll have in common is knowing Christ. The Christ who by verse 21 will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. See, knowing Christ may mean sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings now, but it also means enjoying fellowship with him in his glory and our lowly bodies. And some of us don't need persecution for our bodies to be pretty lowly. Despised, battered, humiliated, ignored, worn out now, will be like his glorious resurrection body then. I want to follow that path, says Paul. I've not arrived, but I'm on a journey. And the rest of the chapter is an encouragement to walk with him. It's not a solo journey. Look at verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eye on those who live as we do. Join together. We won't walk this path on our own. We'll need the encouragement and the warnings of others. For Christ is not the only voice in town. See, in verse 18, he talks about enemies of the cross. And the next verse, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. They go wherever their appetites take them. Food, drink, sex, money, things. Their glory is in their shame. They don't just do the ungodly thing. They take pride in it. Their mind is set on earthly things. 
Good like that, we'd run a mile, but their voice is very seductive. And the enemy of the cross is a real schemer. Oh, he'll tempt us with all of those headline things, but uh, uh, the other thing he's doing all the time is to drip feed us comfort. Happy for us to denounce sexual immorality, corporate greed, think we're fighting the battle, and all the time he's just making us comfortable. Comfortable. So that this life is the life we're living for. Making sure we never follow Pastor Wang. Uh, letting us keep Jesus, but never letting go of our comfort for him. So we don't lose freedom. We don't give up respectability in society or the denomination. We never leave a church building. We'll have Jesus without the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. We need each other to enjoy that. See, what's your Jesus worth? Would you surrender cherished ambition, comfortable status, financial security, spiritual pride for him? The enemy drip feeds comfort. And being too comfortable in the here and now is a dangerous place to be. When my predecessor as vicar here at Fullwood, Philip Hacking, was showing me round the parish uh, when I was coming here, he said, I'll show you the poor street of the parish. But ten minutes later, he gave up trying to find it. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the uh, great Baptist minister and preacher, was once invited to dinner by a, a couple in the congregation. They just bought a new house and they'd done it up magnificently. Um, and they came, they had the dinner, and afterwards uh, the wife gave Spurgeon the sort of grand tour of the house, uh, and he went round it, and, and he'd made no comment, and she was sort of very anxious to know what he thought about it. He said, Mr. Spurgeon, you know, what do you think of it? And uh, he stopped again and just sort of looked around uh, at all the trimmings and everything, and he said, uh, these are things that make dying hard. Not very diplomatic may have been very pastoral, may have needed saying and hearing. We'll need those kind of friends to enjoy the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So why don't we just before we get swept away and drift on as before, just take a moment to pause. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Uh, take a moment to guard yourself and pray that you might be someone who's rejoicing in the Lord. And then think of, think of and pray for a friend you need to encourage to live and enjoy that. A minute to pray for ourselves, to pray for the friend we're going to encourage.